Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 Plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Shirley Halperin, Executive Editor of Music, and for this episode we're bringing you a panel discussion that I moderated at the Milken Institute Global Conference on May 4th, 2022. The session was called Drop the Mic, the Business of Music. For this talk, which took place at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, I was joined by a group of incredibly knowledgeable music industry professionals. Mark Semino, Chief Operating Officer of Universal Music Publishing Group. Charisse Clark Sores, Founder and CEO of Harborview Equity Partners. Harvey Mason Jr., CEO of the Recording Academy and a noted producer and songwriter. And Scott Pescucci, Chief Executive Officer of Concord. On the agenda, the booming business of catalog sales, which has seen the likes of Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, and Paul Simon cash out for paydays in the hundreds of millions of dollars and multiples of more than 20 times current market value. Indeed, in 2021, investors spent $5.3 billion on acquisitions of recorded music catalogs, publishing rights, and other royalties. According to Midia Research, that's up 180% from a year prior in 2020. On this panel, we look at what's driving Wall Street's interest in songs and assets. Will these deals pay off for the institutional investors backing them? How does the growth of music streaming services impact overall song consumption and the dollars, or more likely cents, that trickle down to musicians and songwriters? We also talk about the archaic laws that govern music copyrights and royalties. And we look ahead to the future and ask, will the popularity of NFTs among music enthusiasts offer a new way for fans to directly support their favorite artists? This year's Milken Institute Global Conference brought together some 120 sessions under the theme, Celebrating the Power of Connection. On the morning of our panel, we shared a speaker room with the likes of Goldie Hawn, Deepak Chopra, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Don Cheadle as they tackled topics on finding calm and building a meaningful life. I encourage you to head over to milkeninstitute.org and click on Global Conference for an archive of all the talks that took place over four days in May. 
Join us after the break for the ins and outs of music catalog sales as explained by the experts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic. Welcome back to Strictly Business. Here's our conversation from the Milken Institute's global conference. And because there are multiple voices in this recording, you'll be hearing the speakers in this order. Harvey Mason Jr., Sharice Clark-Sores, Scott Pascucci, and Mark Semino. I wanted to just start out with a little introductory thought. It was about 57 years ago when Bob Dylan famously enraged folk music purists by going electric. What might those people say today when they learn that he sold his song catalog to a multinational <laughs> conglomerate for nearly $400 million? <laughs> In the past few years, the value of these assets has really soared to previously unimagined heights with publishing in particular, seeing multiples well over 20 times their current market value. In 2021, just to give you some context, Investors spent $5.3 billion on acquisitions of recorded music catalogs, publishing, and other royalties. That's according to Media Research, and that's up 180% from 2020. 
So let's talk about catalogs and catalog acquisitions because it's a very hot topic. You know, I'll just sort of throw this out to the panel. Is music a sexy investment again? Well, I can say it's always been a sexy investment, but I'm a music person. So <laughs> I'm on the creative side, so I will leave it to some of the investors to talk about the investment. But I can tell you that music has never been more relevant, never been more important culturally. It's moving what's happening in our society. It's integral to every part of entertainment, film, TV, gaming, virtual. So to me, music is the sexiest thing there is. Sharice? I'd say music is always, to Harvey's point, been sexy. It's the center of culture, actually. If you really think about what actually moves culture, what's ahead of culture, it's music. Music leads a lot of the ways that we are going to show up in the world. It tells us where we're going to go. So music has always been a key part of the ecosystem. But as an investment opportunity, you know, we believe that content is queen. We do believe that it is the tip of the spear, that it drives value for lots of different distribution platforms, and they've looked different over time, um, and they'll continue to look different over time. And music, um, film, television, all these things will be center to that conversation. And if it's centers of the conversation, and it's centered to driving a lot of economic value, it will always be an attractive asset class in our perspective. And if I could just chime in, part of making music an attractive investment opportunity, I think, is determined on how we continue to push for the rights of creators and the, the value of the intellectual property attached to music and being able to monetize the art is very important. And not only for us as creators and for all of our members at the Recording Academy, but for someone investing in music, making sure that music is valuable and continues to withhold, withhold its value long-term. So that's something that we're really, really intent on continuing to concentrate on, I'm sure you all. I think everybody up here is on the same page of that. We have to make sure creators and owners of intellectual property are being fairly compensated. I think, you know, implicit in your question is the very current focus on catalogs and catalog acquisition, right? It's not just, is music sexy? Music is sexy, art is sexy, but what is new is the focus of Wall Street on buying catalogs, valuing them, talking about it. And I think what gets lost in the last couple of years of frenetic activity is that for the companies in the music industry, we have been buying and building catalogs for decades. So it's really Wall Street's focus on the, on the business and the opportunity that's new. And on the one hand, it's nice that Wall Street has taken the time to learn our business and to figure out what the attractiveness of our catalogs are, because they are extraordinary. But at the same time, it has created a level of frenetic frothiness, which is, I think, also implicit in your question. What are the motivations of the sellers, of the artists, and, and of the buyers? Look, I think there's a natural lifespan of these artists, and you know, they reach a certain age where they want to make sure that their legacy is being preserved in the proper way and that they can do a transaction where they know that well after they're here, these songs are going to be treated in the way that they would want them to be treated if they were still around. And I think finding the right partner is very important. There's, you know, obviously the, the financial reasons. There's, you know, great opportunities for people to sell and enjoy the fruits of their labor late in life. There's estate planning, there's tax treatments that are favorable. I think all of those things factor in. I think it depends on who the person is that's selling, you know, particularly on the deals that we've done. What's been great about it is that we felt like it's not necessarily bidding war type situations. It's these people have wanted to be with us mm -hmm. 
and we take that responsibility very seriously. I think arcing off of what Mark said, as everybody in the panel knows, there is a lot of increased liquidity in music catalogs now, right? There are more buyers, there's more buying and selling, but they are not as liquid as, you know, if I die tomorrow, resolving my estate is a fairly straightforward process. If you have an enormous music catalog when you pass, you are leaving your children, your heirs, a bundle of responsibilities that they may not want and they may not be prepared for. And it's not, even if you have, you know, counterparties like labels and publishers who are doing 95% of the work, the 5% of the work is a lot and requires experience. And not every family wants that responsibility. So in a period where multiples are high, I think that a lot of artists like Dylan and others are looking at their legacy and saying, my legacy is a creative legacy. My legacy is also a financial legacy and it's a business and it has a team of people that run that business. And when we're not here anymore, who's going to run it? Or does it make more sense for me to reduce it to more fungible assets so that my heirs can enjoy that without taking on the responsibility that I chose to take on as an artist 60 years ago? I would also add that obviously there's estate planning. There are folks who are thinking about legacy, which I do agree with everything that Scott and Mike said. But you also are seeing younger artists participate in the marketplace as well. And hard to speak for all of them at all. But, you know, I always give the example that I worked at a major financial institution for years and decades. And every year I got some cash and I got some stock. But it was all tied to this one financial institution. And so if anything happened to that financial institution, that would harm my personal wealth. So you're starting to see a lot of um, artists across generations have sophisticated counsel who tell them to think about diversifying their wealth and think about planning outside of just only indexing to the core business that they live in and work in and breathe in every single day. Um, so I think there's a lot of motivations. And the liquidity that's come into the marketplace is really in some instances, even empowered creators. Like one of the artist catalogs that I've purchased in the past was a really young artist, but it allowed her to be a little bit more empowered about how she thought about the next phase of her career without feeling rushed into doing something that she wasn't necessarily ready for. So I do think there are a number of different reasons for artists and creators across the um, spectrum to really be thinking about engaging in the marketplace. I also think, I have to say that this generation of executives in the music business mm -hmm. might be a little different than, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, where I think it was very business oriented back then. And now, you know, you have people that grew up worshiping music that are, that are running the music companies now. Mm -hmm. And with respect to Bob Dylan, I mean, we... That is a heavy responsibility. I don't know that people 40 years ago would have looked at it that way. It would have been a much more business-oriented approach. Uh, look, clearly we run a business and that's a focal point for us in making sure that the music is monetized properly, but there's just an awe of taking a catalog on like that that I don't know would have existed you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Look, I like to think Universal's the best at it, and I know we are, but I, I don't think that that ethos is necessarily unique to us, mm -hmm. right? I think that, I mean, I know Scott very well. I know how enamored he is mm -hmm. with, with music in general, and, mm -hmm. and I think the same goes for all the people that are active in this space. And I think Converse 
to the business approach from the labels that Mike's talking about. I speak as a creator. When you start writing music or creating this art, you're not thinking about the business. Right. You're thinking about what can I make that's cool? What can I make that comes from my heart? What can I create that makes people relate to what I'm saying or lands with people? And you do that early in your career until you reach a certain point, mm -hmm. and then it clicks over to what you started speaking about, which is like, oh, I might have the opportunity to create some agency for me going forward in my career. Mm -hmm. I have an asset here, which you're not thinking about when you're making it. You're just making it because you love it. You love the music, you love the, the process, and you love sharing your feelings and your thoughts. And then it comes a time when you're like, oh, they're paying a 20 multiple, 25 <laughs> multiple. This is a different opportunity. So yes, estate planning, yes, worrying about your legacy, but a lot of it is coming down to finally clicking into the opportunity that's available to you and having the chance to really change your life mm -hmm. and to make a difference in how you want to proceed. Many people sign deals earlier in their careers that give them some, some financial resources, but they are somewhat limiting. And when you get to the point where you've created an asset and can have a liquidity event that could change your life, that's making a lot of creators think right now. I mean, music is one of the most complicated and archaic sort of financial models that there can be. Literally, it is guided by laws that were made many decades ago and have still yet to catch up. I wonder if one of you guys, because I know I've done this a lot of times, having to explain the difference between master recording rights, which by the way, that word master is probably gonna be not used anymore, but just for the sake of this battle, explain somebody the difference between master rights and publishing. All right, I'll go first. <laughs> That's a no-win question, by the way. I, you know, an hour from now, I'll yeah. still be explaining it. <laughs> All right, so master recording is the recording that you hear when you listen to the radio or you have your headphones on. You're hearing the physical manifestation of a song. A song is a bunch of lyrics and notes on a piece of paper. So one way to think of it is, Hey Jude was written by Lennon and McCartney. They wrote it, somebody transcribed it onto a piece of paper. And that's the song. It doesn't, you don't actually have to be able to hear it for it to be a song. It's a song existing on a piece of paper. There have been, what do you think, 7,000 covers of Hey Jude, maybe 100,000 covers. Each of those recordings of Hey Jude is a master recording. It's a recording of that song. And the important thing to know is that every time that song is played or otherwise exploited, Lennon McCartney, the people that own that publishing, they get a slice of the economics. Right? Every single version, all 100,000 versions of that song, something flows to them. But depending upon which version of the recording is being exploited, it's one of the other 100,000 artists or people who's getting a piece of the master recording part of the economics. Does that make sense? So you get two sets of economics. Publishing is unitary. Recordings is, is unlimited how many versions of a song can be recorded. Harvey, as, an, as the artist on this panel, the songwriter, I mentioned some of your credits, Michael Jackson, Jennifer Hudson, Whitney Houston, Elton John. Have you considered selling your publishing? Like, can you take us through what kind of mental deliberations you might think? Would you sure. or wouldn't you? Yeah, maybe it's a little embarrassing because I have gone through the back and forth about it and I know uh, we've all been discussing the, the, uh, the ratios and the payouts that are available, but I have been hesitant to sell mine just because of personal uh, belief that I like to hold on to what I've created to this point. Mm -hmm. 
probably not the smartest decision in the world financially, but I'm, I'm very proud of what I've created. I'm proud of my songs, and I'd like to keep them for now. So I've gone back and forth, and that's where I've landed so far. Okay. okay. Sorry, Sharice. No, <laughs> listen, as a firm, we are, we are very intent that we do not solicit artists or creators to purchase their music. If they are actively looking to sell, we are excited to compete. Yeah. But we are not here to push people to do things before they're ready. And because we are a firm dedicated to the entertainment, media, and sports segment writ large, we are long-duration players. We are not tourists. We intend to hope, I'm hopefully building a firm that withstands the test of time, lives past my legacy. We'll be here in 10 years when you're ready. We'll be here next month if you're ready. <laughs> you know? So we really respect the decisions of the creative ecosystem as to when it makes sense for them. Well, and that's important to say. I. That was just my personal belief. I have no qualms with people who feel like it's time to sell their catalogs, and I think it's great in many instances. So that's just where I am so far. I got we'll you. See. We'll see next week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's also unrealistic expectations from some artists and songwriters because they hear these insane numbers. Bob Dylan number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, where's my 400 million? Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Unconfirmed. Sharice, you and I have talked about this, this sort of like... I don't want to say unrealistic ex expectation, but how did you describe it? There are two pieces to the equation. There's obviously the imprint of what the art is and how important it is culturally, who it's important to and why. And then there's obviously for people who have stakeholders. We all have stakeholders sitting here at this, at this table. We have shareholders in some instances, either public or private. Um, and so a big part of what, we are, what we're supposed to do is also deliver a return to our shareholders. And a lot of times, you know, we hear all these big numbers. We hear 20, we hear 25, we hear 30 times. <laughs> and that's not always the case on everything. All things are not created equal, not because it isn't um, just as valuable uh, from an imprint on culture perspective, but there is a lot of factors that go into how you size a purchase price, inclusive of age, inclusive of you know, quality of um, earning streams, inclusive of diversification. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And sometimes, you know, especially in conversations like this, it's super easy because the science is boring. I am a science geek. I grew up in the financial <laughs> markets, but I did play the piano for 15 years. <laughs> um, but so the science is boring. It takes too long to, to, to discuss. So that's why we all shorthanded and talk about 15, 20, 25, 30, right? Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is there's a lot more that goes into it. And sometimes what's unfortunate for for seller expectations is that that's all they hear. And so they don't hear the nuance that goes into the conversation. But that being said, we really try to focus on having a very agnostic view as it relates to genre, as it relates to type of music that we're buying. We really try to focus on looking, using the science to drive decision-making. And I think what that's allowed us to do is actually see things that other people don't necessarily see. like. We sort of have this saying internally that the world is round, it's not flat, which means it's not only the things that you see in the four corners of your universe, but it's really about the fact that there's a whole global ex experience. And sometimes the music that I love is not the music that you love, it's not the music that you love, but that's perfectly fine. And that allows us to see and engage with creators that some people here may never have even heard of, but also allows us to engage with all the names that we've all heard of. So tying all that together means that everything is not all the same. We put all that together to come up with a point of view and what we think is the right point of view to pay for something. And we try to treat it with the respect that it deserves. And on the artist side, you know, 
they have to be smart with their money. Yeah. You know, I, that's that's a whole other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, to be honest, too, and I, I think everybody here on, on this panel that's in the process of buying believe in this philosophy as well, but we really try to be people of our word. Like, if I can pay you $100, here's $100. If I can't, I can't. If someone else is paying, promising to pay you $120, but then they come back later and tell you they only got 95 that's just <laughs> not a thing that we do. So I think sellers also need to just be cognizant of engaging with firms and people who are really people of their word. Last question on this, and then we'll move on. So here are some of the artists that have sold interests in their, their catalogs. Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young, Paul Simon, members of Fleetwood Mac. Sensing a trend here, like the radio dial, there is only so much classic rock. Is that genre sort of weighted more heavily? And will that signify any kind of slowdown or fizzling of this robust market? Scott? Uh yeah, this seems like a Scott I'll, I'll question. I'll go first, and then these guys can pick apart my answer. I think that, you know, when we talk about genres and we talk about multiples, we are, we are definitely using very simplistic shorthand. It's the way you talk about it in a conversation. The process is really about analyzing the composition of the revenues that are in a catalog. The composition of the revenues means where's the money coming from? Is it coming just from streaming? Is it also coming from terrestrial radio? Is it mostly coming from the US? Is it also coming from foreign? If you look at genres of music for the past 50 years, classic rock checks a lot of boxes. It's not that classic rock inherently commands a better multiple. It's more that when you look at what is checking the most boxes and what has a good worldwide footprint, you can justify paying high numbers for a lot of classic rock. But at the same time, when you look at a catalog, one of the most key factors is how old is it, right? Is it seasoned? Are you looking at something that just dropped 24 months ago, in which case you don't know where you are on the curve. You can't figure out what number to put into your model. But there's a lot of music that's come out in the last 30 years that is not classic rock. And a lot of it is, has traveled well outside the US. A lot of it checks a lot of boxes, and those genres, those artists will trade, do trade at the same kind of multiples, to go back to the simplistic way of looking at it, as classic rock. But part of it is just a, it's just a process of what are the older dominant artists that are getting to an age where they are open to the idea of selling, but that process changes and continues for the next 50 years, and there will be different artists, right? 30 years from now, someone will pay a Springsteen multiple for Drake, because that is today's pop music. That is, that is our worldwide music now. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from speakers Mark Samino, Sharice Clark-Sorez, Harvey Mason Jr., and Scott Pascucci. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. 
That's right. Sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. And we're back with more from the Milken Institute's Global Conference. You know, music is an industry that is oftentimes at odds with itself. And I would say at the top of this evidence heap is the relationship between DSPs, which is Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, title, and the major music companies. Spotify, for instance, label groups owned or own, not an insignificant equity share. And if you look at the stock price, it's down 60% since the start of 2022. We saw what happened with Netflix recently when their subscriber growth slowed. Do you think, and Mark, this is probably a question that I would love to hear your answer to, that this relationship that was symbiotic has almost become like more antagonistic. And I say this because when it comes to songwriters, they are paid the smallest amount when it comes to royalties. The labels make the vast majority, 80 something percent, um, because they are the master rights holders. And the songwriters get about 12%, which is divided between the publisher and the writer. And then of course there are splits on the song. So you're talking about like fractions of a cent for a song that wouldn't exist without the songwriter. So as you, who works at UMPG and represents songwriters, and then UMG, the biggest company, music company in the world, like how do you juggle these things? Look, I don't think that the relationship is antagonistic, okay. right? Um, I think it might need, you know, it's slightly off in terms of the calibration because I think the people that work at the DSPs are also music lovers, and they recognize the value of songwriters. They don't necessarily agree with where we think the songwriters should be. We fight every day to make sure that our songwriters are being properly compensated and fairly compensated. And it's not where we would like it to be, 
but I don't think it's because the DSPs don't value the songwriters. I think that there's a slight tension, like I said, in the calibration, but I'm optimistic, especially with the work that the NMPA is doing and Harvey's organization is doing. The publishers are aggressively pushing to make sure that songwriters are compensated. It is our guidepost in every single thing that we do. But I, I, I don't think it's a doomsday scenario between us and the DSPs. Okay, we'll see. Yeah, um, I, I would just chip in as, as, yes, a, as a creator who has seen my personal royalty statement go from this to this. Yeah. Uh, but with that being said, I see this is a real partnership with the tech companies and streaming companies because they've brought our music to so many millions of people that might not have ever been able to access it. They've made it more convenient, more available. So I agree with Mark. It is not a doomsday situation. It's There needs to be some accommodations made and some changes made to the model. I think they realize that, and we've been having great conversations. Uh, not to say that we have a, an answer on the horizon, but I do think, you know, as you said, they're, they're music lovers. The people over there at the platforms, they love music. And every time I talk to them, they tell me about their favorite song and their favorite artist, and they're, they're trying to figure out their business model. We're trying to figure out the, the creator's business model, and I think mm -hmm. coming together to find some, some solution is probably going to hopefully come shortly at, at, with the aid of federal legislators and lawmakers who we're constantly talking to. So as I spoke to Sharice about, that's going to be something that we have to watch closely because that will affect mm -hmm. the value of these catalogs or these, the value of individual songs. It will also affect, by the way, the writers and creators that I'm finding that are carrying two extra jobs when they're writing huge hit songs. Yep. I was with a, a young woman in D.C. last week who was nominated for a Grammy for a song of the year, and she was still driving rideshare service job and also working at a restaurant mm -hmm. while having her song streamed billions of times and having been nominated for a Grammy. And so when you see the inequity there, you start to be a little bit concerned because for me, and I think for all of us on the stage, we want to see the best creators making music. We don't want to lose a whole generation of songwriters or creators to another job because they couldn't afford to pay their bills or they couldn't afford to eat. So they go get a job, you know, on Wall Street or as a barista, either one. And so for us, figuring that out is very important and making sure that we allow people the opportunity to monetize their art. And just one other stat that I think is important to acknowledge, everybody has a different number, but the number that I hear is there's 70,000 songs a day being put up on these platforms. And so you think about the amount of content, how that has changed, and you ask, was this a boom with mm -hmm. consumption? And I don't see it that way. I don't think any of us do. We think that the creativity is at an all-time high, the consumption is at an all-time high, the enjoyment, the effect on our lives and on our culture has never been higher, and I don't see that ever changing. Okay, well, we'll see what happens with the Copyright Royalty Board. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Shirley, re remember, you know, subscription, it's still early days, yes. right? We've been living with it now for seven or eight years, and it's booming, but at the same time, it's still early days, and it takes time to get these things worked out in a proper way. Yeah, and look, if, you know, the television or the streaming TV industry is any indication, people sign up for multiple services and pay a lot of money to get the content that they want, the entertainment that they want. So it's it's certainly there. Well, it might be sacrilegious to say this, but we also don't know how long streaming is going to last, right? We had that's cassettes, right. we had CDs, we right. had vinyl, right. we had streaming. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of why I, was, I brought it up, because I've definitely read that there is the belief that 
there's a finite market for people who want to pay for subscriptions only because they can get it for free. Yeah, but, you know, we're different than the SVOD services, right? I mean, there's a churn that exists at Netflix or Hulu, which is mostly driven by the content that they have, right? There's a resounding yes to having an entire music catalog on your phone, right? right? There's nuanced differences between Amazon, Apple, and Spotify, but they're predominantly the same in that you can walk around with an entire music catalog on your phone. And I don't see the same kind of churn that exists on a Netflix or, or Hulu. Well, let's talk about the future of, of music and as a commodity, NFTs, the metaverse, Web3, these are terms that are being thrown around a lot these days. Sharice, you've said this, and I think it's kind of brilliant, that we're in the MySpace stage when it comes to music in the metaverse. <laughs> I think that's I think that's 100% true, but let me give credit where appropriate credit is due. My dear friend Morgan De Bruin, who started, he's the CEO and founder of Blavity, is the one that told me that, and I completely believe that. We know that it's coming. It's here, we're hearing it, we're feeling it, but we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. So we're still really early days on what the monetization model is. How will we all engage? Are we all gonna walk around with headsets on our heads for a long period of time? Are we gonna go to work like that? Like these are questions that we're all asking ourselves. Who's gonna engage? Is it communities? Is it communities around gaming? Is it communities around children? So I think we're still very much so learning what this new segment of technology is gonna do, but I do think it's coming. I do believe that NFTs and or blockchain is a really engaged and interesting way for creators to be have a better seat at the table. I don't know if we have the exact, again, monetization model that we all think is gonna be the right way. But for example, I literally was just having this conversation with someone earlier today where they were talking about how they've tried to participate in, t- in the Nas NFT that was offered. And it was like really exciting for them as a fan to sponsor the content mm-hmm. and to pr- help to promote the content in that way, even if they never necessarily made back 100 cents on the dollar in terms of what they invested in from the NFT. But that engagement and that crowdsourcing from the community and in partnership with some of your favorite artists is, I think, a really interesting one. So I think we're still early days on how we'll see all of this stuff come together. But I do think that it's coming. And for people to ignore it, I think, is a long thing. Early days is a great way to put it. And I do think it's going to continue to grow. But I would say it's absolutely here. We're seeing the desire for music. And we talked about it earlier. Music's omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's in all these platforms. Uh, At the Academy this year for the first year, and just as a reminder, I've been the CEO for about 18 months, under two years. And one of the first things I did when I came in, I said, how is music going to be involved in all these new platforms and formats, and how can we make sure we're on the cutting edge of that and make sure that we're looking out for the music community, which is really our our mission and our job and all of our creators and members. It was announced this week that Spotify will be the first music streaming brand to have a presence on Roblox when it launches Spotify Island. So it's described as an otherworldly digital destination for audio where fans and artists from all over the world can explore a wonderland of sounds, quests, and super special merch. Collectibles is a big part of NFTs, Web3, uh, the metaverse. Let's talk about that a little bit. Actually, I want to throw in a, a little stat too. 
So as much as we're talking about digital, physical formats of music had such a huge 2021. It was the 15th consecutive year where vinyl sales grew to the tune of 61% or a billion dollars. So for some context, the last time the vinyl records exceeded a billion dollars in sales was in 1986. <laughs> so it is kind of funny the way that the music industry works. Again, just like one of these nonsensical things. Scott, from your previous positions at Rhino and now at Concord, you've really probably witnessed the surge up close. Do you see a connection between the popularity of vinyl and how NFTs can be looked at as collectibles that someone can actually afford to purchase? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that before, but sure. I mean, vinyl defines a different relationship between the listener and the music. You listen to music differently in vinyl, not because it sounds different, but because you make the commitment to put something on and listen to it from beginning to end on one side and then... If you like it, you turn it over, you do the same thing on the other side. It's a very different relationship than what you do when you're on Spotify or whatever, where you're very flitting, you can be very impatient, you can change your mind. And you so, don't own the music. Right. And the way you think about the music contextually is very different because you don't think of it as being the third track that followed the first and second track. It's just a right. track on Spotify. So certain people really like that more than they like streaming. A lot of people like the two in tandem with each other. But both... Limited edition merch, NFTs, the way they're currently sitting in the market. And I think there'll be bigger NFT ideas before this is all over and probably have a pervasive effect on the industry. But right now, to me, it's a limited product niche, similar to limited edition merch, similar to limited edition vinyl. And it's for the hardcore fans that really, really want to have something that not everybody else has. Streaming services are ubiquitous and Everybody has them, so there's nothing special about your relationship with the artist if you listen to it on streaming. So yeah, I think that's a, a fair comp, vinyl to NFTs. It allows you to say, I love this artist so much, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And it's in addition to simply listening to the music on your headphones. And in a way, it's kind of like the fan is able to invest in the musicians. Yep career and, and what they're selling, which but is definitely also, different. From yeah, and you're sending your streaming. money directly to that artist. Right. With streaming, you're paying a subscription that gets spread out amongst all the artists on the platform. If you buy the record, you know, the majority of that money is going to the label, the publishing company, and the artist directly. All right, well, I'm going to see if we have any questions from the audience on our little iPad. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, we have, wow, we have questions. I love it. Would artist education benefit both sides of the business as these issues you've discussed continue to evolve? I would say yes. Harvey, are you guys making efforts to educate artists about finances and Big time. planning? Big time. That's, uh, we're heavily investing in, in that side of, of the academy because we are an academy and a lot of it is around education and making sure uh, we are bringing awareness and education to not just our members but the music community at large. And we touched on it earlier, we believe the more creators and artists are educated, the healthier our ecosystem is, the more we can do good business and we can be in better partnership with uh, everyone from publishers to labels to streamers to investors. So yes, very important and something we're very intent on making sure we work hard at. There's a question here about the democratization of the music business. As an artist that is not on a label, it's incredibly difficult to get exposure. Labels still control all the channels. Oftentimes, the cream does not, in fact, rise to the top. How can the music industry help smaller artists make a more viable living? I would say that 
record deals are probably more in favor of the artist than they have been in the past because artists have gotten smart to you know, you can license my song. Here's a completed album. I want to retain my masters. Mm -hmm. And there's so much buzz around some of these new artists that they're able to really use that as leverage. But what would you say just for the smaller artists? There's a lot of articles out there about how you can't sustain life on the road. You're not getting paid enough as a songwriter from streaming. I think it's really hard to replicate having an army of people around the world working for you. And I think it's easy for Radiohead after 20 years to go off and do it themselves or Wilco to go off and do it themselves. But on day one, I think you can find a niche following and make a living and have a career. But to get to that highest level that every one of us on this panel is familiar with, I think there's nothing more powerful than, than knowing you have 150 to 200 people around the world that are constantly out there trying to get people exposed to your music. Yeah, and the sifting process that goes on, you know, the sifting process by which writers and artists either do or don't get the services of the large players behind them is not inherently rational. It can be brutal, and it doesn't necessarily lead to the best music. And that's just the unfortunate reality of the business. As all of us know, you know, we, we've all had uh, creative friends that we thought were incredibly talented that did not get sifted. They didn't, they didn't get there. And then occasionally you'll, you'll hear something and you think, really, I have that, that made it? <laughs> that well, I don't know if there's anything new in that because that's been happening right. forever. Yeah, it's forever, always exactly. been the case. But the difference now is the coolest thing about the music is the opportunity. Mm -hmm. The business is now open for anybody. You can make a song in your bedroom on a laptop and have it on the platforms in two days. Yeah. Not saying you're going to find an audience instantly and you don't need the 150 to 200 people to blow up, but to make music and to be able to create what you're thinking, what you're feeling in your head and heart and to have it exposed to the world is a new opportunity. We've never had that. When I started, you had to go and try and shop a deal, get somebody to believe in you, spend a million dollars to put you in the studio, market the music. It is completely opened up the creative opportunities for so many people. And for me, I'm extremely thankful for that. I'm extremely optimistic about what that's going to result in for our industry and the creativity that that generates. And I think it's just darn fun to see all these different people making all this amazing art. Hallelujah. Yes. Amen to that. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, thanks, you guys. Thanks for tuning in to Variety Strictly Business. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes featuring conversations with media movers and shakers. Also, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing.